Welcome to the Conscious Culture Cafe, the podcast that explores how you can lean into your purpose, live your values, and enhance your social impact through your work. I'm your host, Kathy Miller Perkins. Hello, all you business activists. Today, I'm joined by CEO of Benevity. Benevity is a B Corp that's the global leader in corporate social responsibility and employee engagement software. And the CEO and founder, Brian DeLottenville, is with me today. Brian is a lawyer by training. He was a mezzanine finance lawyer in an earlier life and did financing work for growth companies. Then after that, he took operational roles in a couple of companies. He helped them grow and sold them. He had some very positive outcomes. However, he says the first time he really thought about what he did for a living was when he was helping his young daughter with a school project. Let's pick up with Brian here. Let's begin our discussion by talking to Brian about that turning point. Brian, tell us about your aha experience. I remember it was it was occasioned by a, a question from my then young daughter who was I think she was probably six or seven, and and she asked me what I did for a living, something to do with the school project. And Mm -hmm. I remember maybe for the first time really thinking about what I did for a living and that the answer really, although it wasn't the one I gave to her, was I fix up companies and sell them for as much as I can, honey. And I'm sure I gave her a much more mainstream response, but it got me thinking about sort of my professional legacy and, and, and really emphasizing that my actions and my intentions weren't not were, were not necessarily as aligned as as I would like them to be and, and I always intended to leave the world a little better than I found it and you know make an impact and and unfortunately to to that point it only made its way to you know writing the occasional check and attending uh, events and you know the typical relatively superficial activities around giving back and so I poked around in the not-for-profit sector a little bit thinking maybe I could run a charity concluded pretty quickly I had neither the skill set nor the patience for uh, <laughs> <I understand that. laughs> the, the governance model in that area and then around the same time I, I made an, an angel investment into a going to be a consuming for good loyalty program that um, ended up failing miserably, but it did get me exposed to the landscape and and some of the the metrics that were the genesis for Benevity. And and they had mainly to do with the extent of the manual centricity of the donation processing side of that world, Mm -hmm. where you know, this was 2006-ish, and I think the uh, then 300 billion in North American donation volume, less than 5% of it was done online. Mm-hmm. And that's now, I think, 410 billion, and, and the number is up to, you know, somewhere between 10 and 12%. So it's it's growing, but with a lot more technological lag than you know, most online activities in other sectors had mm-hmm. experienced. So so that was a, a significant opportunity for both constructive disruption and efficiency gains that would be getting, you know, more of the money that we think we're investing in social issues right. actually right. going where it ought to go. But the more notable stat, which which actually hasn't changed that much over all those years, is that of that then 300 billion now 410 billion 
around 5% of that, only 5% of that comes from corporations, notwithstanding that social responsibility and expectations of consumers and, and employees and all of those other stakeholders around the role of corporations has been changing and evolving. And so I, I, I started to wonder why that number was flat for so many years. And, and the thesis was, which I think has been borne out with some of our uh, progress over the years, was that most companies were pursuing sort of a handout mentality in this area, mm-hmm. not an investment opportunity mentality. And so when times were good, they'd donate some money. When times weren't, they, you know, so it was really our goal with with Benevity was to kind of better integrate business impact and social impact in in a you know pardon the pun a sustainable right. way and and that ultimately if if we could do that we would drive that that number up over time and and create more social impact and also more investment and and resources being being mm-hmm. brought to to bear so that was the why behind it and and mm-hmm. really as we started to focus on the existing space, realized that the bar was appallingly low <laughs> in terms <laughs> of uh, what was out there and, and, and the capabilities that were being offered to companies, you know, were relatively rudimentary and sort of grounded in fundraising focused exercises, mm-hmm. not necessarily engagement and passion evoking functionality and exercises and then the, the definition of of what companies were doing in this area was was far too narrow that's why we use the term goodness and not philanthropy and you know some of these things that are trying to get at expanding this notion beyond the once a year arm twisting exercise around fundraising for a right. corporate chosen charity into something that's more in the nature of tapping into people's sense of yearning for purpose, meaning an impact in, in their lives, you know, mm-hmm. and being something of a catalyst for infusing a, a culture of goodness into the world. And that's the Reader's Digest version of why I started the company. Oh, that is really very interesting. And so the whole B Corporation thing came later. I take it. No, it, we were a B Corp right out of the right out of the shoot, and oh, you were? and oh. it, again, it was part of. I think we were one of the first B corporations in Canada, and a, and a relatively early one, you know, overall. But it was, you know, the 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 this idea of integrating business impact and social impact, which was a, a big part of the genesis for the company, the mm-hmm. B Corp vehicle or corporate status was a manifestation of that that was formalized and and would send a a more than lip service message that we were not only talking the talk, but we were trying to walk it as as well. And, you know, I think, uh, ironically, I'm not a super big fan of the B Corp status in the sense that I don't think it should be an exceptional organizational structure. I think it should be what all companies yeah, pursue. I agree. And, and, and perhaps someday will. Right. Right. But in the meantime, it it does. You know, a, lo- a lot of companies pursue it for marketing purposes. It was that was never really the 
the goal for us. Right. Really trying to align vision, culture, purpose, you know, all right. of those things in as many ways as possible. And that brings me to the question that I have a feeling is not even a relevant question, but I'll ask it anyway, and that is, how do you engage employees around your vision? Is that something you do during the hiring process or are employees just naturally attracted to your vision or does that happen afterwards? How does that work for you? I read the questions on that, that page briefly before the call and it was saying, you know, how can companies engage employees around a vision? And I thought, well, f first you need to have one. Well, yes, <laughs> <No>. exactly. <laughs> and, and having one that is resonant, relatable, aspirational, and, and ideally somehow connects with people's, I think, innate sense or desire for purpose, meaning, and impact is yes. a big part of the ultimate ability to engage people around that, right? Mm -hmm. And which is a long way of saying it can't be words on a wall or a slide on a deck. You know, right. it it needs to be a a resonant and actual vision, and and it needs to, you know, have differentiation and uniqueness as as and or in, in my parlance, what what I seek is in every working environment I've had is constructive disruption. You know, it's hard mm -hmm. to get people engaged around a message of incrementalism or, right. uh, you know, so having, having one articulating it and then building a culture that supports it in a, in an authentic and consistent and, and top down, bottom up sort of way is probably as important as the vision itself. Right. I'll bet. Was that difficult to do? Was tell me about that. Do you find Well, you know, it it happens very naturally in in many companies in the early days, right? When you mm -hmm. have a handful of people and ideally you've you've got a core of those people who are you know the the leadership if you will that are modeling the behaviors and the ethos and the culture mm -hmm. and and so it's relatively easy in the early days and becomes much more challenging as companies grow, especially when you grow at the speed yeah. that we have grown. And, right. and so we have, from very early on, tried to be thoughtful and intentional about propagating that culture and helping people understand as they come in the door who we are, how we roll, what the likelihood of success looks like for them given the the values of the company and so so we've got a number of little pieces and that and that's like for what it's worth I, I don't purport to be an expert on culture but what I what I do know is it's a thousand different little things it's not one or two and right. and so we have a little thing that we do as part of recruitment for instance you know the buff score the benevity unicorn factor and huh? and it's really just the illusion of science around trying to glean from the interview process how a person scores against these 10 or 12 attributes that we believe are critical to success in in our environment and some of them are pragmatic like gray matter and others are are a function of who we are and what's important and you know authenticity and adaptability and humility and you know some of the things that we just believe are important for our culture and and business 
Right. And so that's one of many ways in which we try to be thoughtful and intentional about communicating. You know, you've got to kind of get in, get into this and maybe some of the other questions, but, you know, alignment is extremely yeah. important with culture. You can't yeah. just have, as I said earlier, there's just the words on a wall and then and not recruit, hire, promote, fire, you right. know, consistently with those things. Right. So I, I think it's been, to answer your question, it's been relatively easy because we've invested in it in a, in a thoughtful, intentional, consistent way. That doesn't mean the culture hasn't evolved and changed a bit and, and will continue perhaps mm-hmm. to over time. But And we borrowed from best practices that you like that you trip over, you know, the Netflix type stuff, the Airbnb thing, some of the progressive companies that are that are out there, we don't necessarily borrow fully in in, in every area because we're unique and you've got to do what's what's right for your company, your city, your culture, what whatever it happens to be. So we don't have a slipper allowance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean there is a lot of there is a lot of that out there that in the guise of employee engagement and it's really you know a, a misguided attempt to make people happy rather than yeah. engaged right which right. is is where you get to the slippery slope of the latest perk and what have you done for me lately and right so yeah i wonder about that i i think about some of the companies that are famous for the perks that they give their employees and wonder if that really has anything at all to do with engagement I'm a psychologist by training, and some of the research in psychology you probably are aware of that says that really it's intrinsic motivation that makes a difference. It's not money. It's not. It's not that that's not that people don't like it, but that's not what that grabs people's imagination and gets them engaged in what they're doing. It comes from inside rather than from the perks. So right. I've been wondering myself about why these companies think that way very very confusing to me well it's be it's because uh, i i think in part we have the drucker and other driven sort of ethos and that if you can't measure it then it doesn't really exist and, right. and so some of the issues around what is engaging for people are amorphous at best mm-hmm. and yep. very difficult to to measure and and to cost and to do some some of those sorts of things. So the things that we we revert to tend to be the more easily measured things like employee benefits and yeah. and, and then and then we survey them on whether that so but if you try to survey someone on how meaningful work attracts them, for instance, to to get to your second question, you know, that is a that is a fluffy HRE thing for most yeah, <laughs> management right. people to tr- to try and get their minds around. So, you know, but the reality, and there's a bunch of data that supports a lot of this thing, is that like there's there's a very powerful little statement called necessary but not sufficient, and yeah, that's right. how I kind of view employee benefits and and compensation and all of that stuff. You know, but but right. if you say all else of that ilk being more or less equal, what do people want? They want 
differentiation that taps into something emotive, you know, and and a slipper allowance is not going to get you there. Right, right, right. So I take it your turnover must be pretty low. It is. It's so low that it worries me a, a little bit because, you know, that's not <laughs> <laughs> that's not necessarily always the goal, right? Right. We, you know, you you don't want to make employee r- retention perfect because the fact is your company's growing and and evolving and the needs are are changing and and people don't always change at that same pace. But True. we have very True. very low rates of both employee and client departure. I'm mm-hmm. more more convinced that the client retention metric is is the the more important one you know and that's it's that's an interesting piece about some of these things Kathy is one of the things that we've we've started to invest in and in, in the sort of latest phase of our culture if you will is is making sure that as new people come in they're not misinterpreting some of the values and messaging that has been around so We've been very successful, for instance, building a culture that is really focused on client service and, and mm-hmm. responsiveness and passion. And, you know, and it's a big part of, you know, one of our key metrics is 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 to have RFOBs, which is raving fans of Benevity. And, mm-hmm. and so sometimes that goes from an orientation to a, well, the client asked for this, so I have to say yes. You know, especially when you're trying to disrupt an industry, you don't necessarily want to be saying yes to every question, especially if you don't understand the why behind the question. You know, getting to the Henry Ford sort of, if I'd asked them, they would have said, build me a faster horse kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so we we have a few of, of those evolutionary sort of, friction points where people are kind of subscribing to what they think the culture is but not necessarily executing it thoughtfully and so we have to we have to continue to you know or humility as a, as an attribute you know i heard some someone say well you're not allowed to be confident well <laughs> that's not what you know that's not what humility is it's really about in our context self-awareness and, right. and growth mindset and uh, you know uh, willingness to take feedback constructively and not necessarily need to be the smartest person in the room and some of those sorts of things. So even if you've got success around some of these values and and, and kind of cultural orientations, you, you can't just kind of put them on the shelf and assume that they will guide in perpetuity. So how do you do that? And that that's the leadership question, I guess. Who owns the culture? Is it you? Is it human resources group? Is it everybody? How how do you view that? How do you go about making sure that the culture is maintained and interpreted right by new people? And I interpret that to be leadership, really. Yeah, I don't want to take too much credit for it because it is a a company-wide thing ultimately, and it's definitely not an HR or, you know, we, we call it the people team here, but it's sort of like an architect and a house, you know, and and who who builds the house, who maintains the house, who who might you know renovate the house and and things like that. And so I really think that our leadership 
and I and I I've been really fortunate because that one of those companies that I was exposed to early on had a tremendous corporate culture that was a a product of a very charismatic if not somewhat tyrannical prototypical entrepreneurial leader and uh-huh. and so I got to see some some very positive and some negative manifestations of culture in a in a in a growth company an evolving context and i've i've been able to borrow some of and part of it was just you know the the importance of it and the power of it you know mm-hmm. at that company we we really had no business winning business because we were wildly more expensive than most of our competitors but the back in that world people came and visited the the factory if you will and interacted with the people and 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 just like at Benevity, there is a there's a there's a palpable vibe here that is compelling to folks and i have certainly been the chief proponent of and protectorate, if you will, of of the culture and and the importance of it as a strategic business lever. Mm-hmm. When, when more conventional MBA trained folks, for instance, might not see that as mm-hmm. the lever that it it is. And when you look at the the hundreds of iconic corporate brands that we have, the ones who have not come to us through word of mouth from an RFOB at some point along the line is very, very small. So it it continues to be an extremely important part of of our growth and success. So it needs to be invested in just like any other asset and and it it evolves over time and mm-hmm. and and things like that. So that's why I say it's 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 very it's it's absolutely critical that that get invested in in a top down sort of way mm-hmm. but ultimately for its success it needs to be democratized and 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 propagated horizontally and vertically for it to be part of the company's sort of mm-hmm. success if that makes so are you i take it that you're a fairly flat organization or not i don't really know your structure at this point well i would say we are fairly flat part of that is by design part of it is is the speed at which we've we've grown i do happen to believe that companies as they get larger part of what challenges their ability to sustainably grow and innovate is the introduction of quote professional management and and hierarchies and approval processes and all of all of the conventional and well-intentioned efforts to be more predictable and replicable and scalable and and some of those things sometimes translate into more bureaucratic and right. and we and we get to see it in in our client base because we've got these huge huge right. companies that take months and months and months to to turn the boat a little wee bit you know <laughs> <laughs> and and so we're we're trying to stay not so much flat but agile and nimble those two are sometimes connected but you know when you have when you have 500 people it's a lot harder to be flat than than when you have 20 you know well, it, sure. it's right. it's uh and then people crave structure and and predictability internally and 
execution plans and goals and you know all all of these things that require some more conventional and structured planning and, and, and process. So it's, it's, it's something of a delicate balance. Well, it sounds like it. I had made two notes, you know, what does leadership look like in a purpose-driven company? We did, yeah. we did talk about leadership. My first thought when I, when I read that question was th- that it hopefully is diverse as to gender, ethnicity, ethos, background, education, you know, some of those, some of those things, but that the common element would need to be sort of authentic passion and commitment to the the power of the vision and the culture of the company. That's kind of what I think it, it looks like. And then the other point was, I don't think we actually covered how does meaningful work attract employees? Um, And I, you know, I'm not convinced that meaningful work in itself is sufficient. It needs to be bigger than that, perhaps, you know, by the same token, I think that any work in any industry can be infused with a sense of meaning and purpose without necessarily sort of subscribing to the shared value or, you know, Mm -hmm. some of those more macro sort of contents. You know, in other words, if if your workplace experience conveys a sense of meaning and purpose, that will in your to the, the the sense of affinity that a person has to their employer or, or, or their company. We get to cheat a little bit at Benevity because we sort of have both a a meaningful work in a macro sense, mm-hmm. but we have more vocal expressions of, of passion around the, the stuff we do, ironically, using our own software, in, you know, to to give back and volunteer and on these pur- purpose-driven behavioral initiatives and things. Oh, really? Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, we have a, like 90%, north of 90% participation rate in our, the use of our software in giving and volunteering and, and missions wow. uh, without a snick of arm twisting. You know, it's just, again, part of the culture, 90%. but it's... Wow. Yeah. Wow. Brian, I have so enjoyed talking with you today. And let me see if I can summarize a few of the things that you said that can be takeaways for our listeners. First of all, you said that in order to get people to buy into a vision, first you have to have one. You said it has to be resonant, relatable, aspirational, and more importantly, it has to connect with the employee's innate sense of purpose and meaning and their need for having an impact. And second, you have to build a culture to support the vision. You said that culture is important as the vision itself. It has to be top down and bottoms up, has to be authentic and much more than values placed on a paper on a wall. You said that you must be thoughtful and intentional about the culture especially as the company grows. So as, as people come in the door, you have to let them know who you are and how you roll. And then you said culture's made up of a thousand little things. You must have higher promotion and firing based on your values. And you have to view culture as a strategic lever and invest in it in a thoughtful and intentional way. And one of the most interesting things you said, in my opinion, is... You, you suggested that we not confuse employee happiness with engagement. You suggested that while perks, such as the slipper allowance, may make people happy, that will not engage them in an emotional way where they commit to their companies and to their jobs. 
So finally, you, you suggested that the key is an authentic passion and commitment to the vision. Thanks again, Brian, for all that you bring to me and our listeners, and I hope to see you again soon. I've really enjoyed chatting, Kathy, and I look forward to reading your book. Fascinating for me. I really appreciate it very, very much. Thanks for your time. Okay. I hope we'll talk again soon. I hope we will, too. <laughs> Thanks again, Brian. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Conscious Culture Cafe. If you liked what you heard, connect with us at millerconsultants.com. You can access the show notes and receive our free materials. See you next episode.